This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. St. Augustine as spiritual master. So I do want to begin with St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, this title is a sort of a reference to a book about St. Thomas, uh, where St. Thomas is called Spiritual Master. So this is a rich, if vague, phrase, and I want to use it in a particular way tonight, because it's used for St. Thomas to express the fact that he's not just a philosopher or not just a theologian, but he is a spiritual guide, and, uh, and the word master can have a lot of meanings. Uh, it's, it's very um, pungent. So there are kind of two main ways that you might take master in, in Latin. One is uh, dominus, like lord, a lord, like a, someone in charge. And then there's a magister, like a teacher, a master in the sense like the Bible says rabbi, master, meaning a teacher. I want to begin with this text on your handout uh, from St. Thomas. It's from his Summa Theologiae. And the question is about whether in the state of innocence, man would have been master over man. Why do I want to start with this? Because this is a kind of famous Augustine thing. The spirit of mastership is a theme in one of St. Augustine's great works, The City of God. He gives us a phrase that is considered uh, in many ways by many people and taken in different ways. The desire for mastery, the libido dominandi. So the libido dominandi is something which has been in us since the fall and been the cause of a lot of disastrous sort of forms of relationships among human beings. So the question then is sort of pointed, like in the state of innocence, before we had this desire for mastery, would there have been government? The question is kind of posed about government. Would there have been government in Eden? And St. Augustine is taken to think that no, it would, that wouldn't be necessary because it wouldn't be Strife. There wouldn't be strife between human beings. Desires would be well-ordered one to another, so there wouldn't be. And then we see this in the first objection that St. Thomas articulates. So he, phrase, he poses his questions by first giving the question and then some objections that state one side of the position, whereas he is going to argue the opposite. Okay, so the first objection. It would seem that in the state of innocence, man would not have been master over man. For Augustine says... In City of God, book 19, God willed that man, who was endowed with reason and made to his image, should rule over none but irrational creatures, not over men, but over cattle. So this is the Augustinian objection. Mastery would not be necessary over men, only over beasts. And we get that from Genesis, right? God gave mastery to Adam over the beasts. So St. Thomas is going to give us some helpful things, and I want to give this as an example of someone who is a reader of St. Augustine and show you how he reads St. Augustine. In a certain sense, we are reading St. Augustine alongside St. Thomas because we are gathered here under the aegis of St. Thomas at the Thomistic Institute. Okay, St. Thomas says, I answer that mastership has a twofold meaning. First, as opposed to slavery. In which sense, a master means one to whom another is subject as a slave. In another sense, mastership is referred in a general sense to any kind of subject. And in this sense, even he who has the office of governing and directing free men can be called a master. In the state of innocence, man could have been a master of men, not in the former, but in the latter sense. This distinction is founded on the reason that a slave differs from a free man, in that the latter has the disposal of himself, as is stated in the beginning of Aristotle's Metaphysics, whereas a slave is ordered to another. So we're getting a little thumbnail sketch of what slavery means. 
to be subject to another in terms of being ordered to another as a slave is the opposite of being subject to another as free. So it's possible, what's implied here is that it's possible to be subject to another person, but as a free man, a free human being. Okay, going on. But a man is the master of a free subject by directing him either towards his proper welfare or to the common good. So this is what I want us to begin to think about. Augustine is a master. Augustine directs us to our proper welfare, our own welfare, and also to a common good. The common good. This was the subject of a recent Thomistic Circles conference. Uh, what is the common good? Very hard to say. So you need masters to help guide you. Such a kind of mastership going on would have existed in the state of innocence between man and man. So this kind of governance, St. Thomas thinks, would have existed in Eden. In Eden, there would have been government. First, because man is naturally a social being. This is a, an important idea if we're thinking about Augustine, as we'll see, that he is naturally a social being. And so, in the state of innocence, he would have led a social life. It's nice. He would have had a social life. And now, a social life cannot exist among a number of people unless the presidency, unless under the presidency of one to look after the common good. You have to have a president so that you can have social life. For many, as such, seek many things, whereas one attends only to one. This is interesting. And Dominicans like this argument because, okay, you can have a lot of people who are really smart and who are seeking holiness and seeking to live together of one mind and heart, but they seek different things, and so they can't move forward. Governance is very difficult, and we are a very democratic order. So St. Thomas lived a radically democratic life for his time, and it was hard to move forward even though you have all these men seeking holiness Maybe some of them not so much, but everyone in more or less the same way seeking God. And still, it's like impossible to get stuff done. So, one attends only to one. You put someone in charge of the common good. Wherefore, the philosopher says in the beginning of the politics that wherever many things are directed to one, we shall always find one at the head directing them. Second, if one man surpassed another in knowledge and virtue, this would not have been fitting, unless these gifts conduced to the benefit of others, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, as every man hath received grace, ministering the same one to another. Wherefore, Augustine says, City of God, book 19, just men command not by the love of domineering but by the service of counsel. So this is, this is like a classic St. Thomas move. He's saying, you think, you think Augustine is to be read in one way. I will briefly show you, using maybe a minor text from a major work, that he can be understood in the way that I want him to be understood too. So not by the love of domineering. So what I'm saying is that Thomas is picking out the libido dominandi, a slightly different phrase. I think it's uh, cupiditate dominandi. But the desire, the, the sort of almost fleshly or carnal desire for domineering. A just man does not command by the love of domineering, but by the service of counsel. And, City of God, Book 19, again, the natural order of things requires this, and thus did God make man. The natural order of things requires that one, and preferably a just man, and then preferably also a wise, you know, knowledgeable man, not only virtuous, but also smart, would be in charge of the common good. So, you got to have someone in charge, even if you're in a state of innocence, which is a state of great virtue, 
excellent knowledge that exceeds our current knowledge that we have now, you still have to have someone who can order the many to one. And so, simply want to point out that Augustine is, in many senses, the one. He's our guy. The Western tradition has Augustine as its master in so many ways. So, if you look at this brief outline I've given you at the top of the handout, we begin with the voice of the master. Like I said, a master uh, is a kind of pungent concept that has mystery to it. Um, Sovereignty, authority, mystique, charisma are all things that political philosophers attempt to define. Um, you know, sociologists, bio, biologists. Okay, so it's these are these are things which have um, an irreducible mystery to them, and in a way, the voice captures all these things. You know, you know this especially from like dogs. The voice of the master is the thing that brings the dog's will into line. Suddenly, the dog becomes something almost of a new nature when it hears the voice of the master. So Augustine's voice, I want to consider in these three different ways. First, as an author. Uh, When I was like 17 years old, I got the voice of Augustine into my head. I remember walking around my neighborhood, going into the library, pulling Augustine off the shelf, and opening it just because it was something that I had heard of. And I thought, I think this might be kind of mainstream, like not weird enough. I don't know. But I'm going to look at it. It was, it was on the Trinity. And it was just, that was like torpedo. I was sunk forever. And the voice of Augustine has been in my head inescapably ever since then. So, you know, we've given you a copy of the Confessions. Uh, if you want that to happen to you, you might look at it. If you don't want it to happen to you, I mean, it's probably too late for many of you. And maybe he's not the voice that will capture you, or maybe not right now. But I can just say that he became a sort of uh, voice in my head, uh, and has been ever since. And in some ways, I mean, you know, what is uh, attractive to Dominicans about Augustine? He is our master as the author of the rule that we follow. So, the rule of St. Augustine is a rule of life like the rule of St. Benedict. So different religious orders have these rules, meaning a sort of basic constitution of how to live the religious life. So the rule of St. Benedict in the West is the most famous one. But St. Dominic wanted an easier rule for the brothers. Um, And in some ways, a rule that was more driven by the search for truth and the love of friendship. So these are things which are prominent in St. Augustine. So as an author... What is the rule? The rule is actually something that you will find among Augustine's letters. So in the ancient world, as you know from reading the Bible, letters were documents that were circulated, not just to the recipient, but they were copied out and sometimes read in public, maybe sometimes only read by the elite. So Augustine's, if you look at a volume of Augustine's letters, you're going to find some that are like letters, like him talking to his friend about something that happened to him the other day, but also things that are like an entire book. So, for example, he has a book, a small book about seeing God, an important theme for him. And it's a letter. It's among his letters. So this is the same for the rule of St. Augustine's letter 211. You can think about the fact that these letters are very immediate ways of Augustine projecting his voice projecting himself, his power, his authority, as a voice through writing. So not only writing books, but giving this kind of first-person-to-second-person address in the letters, and that these are an important part of his writings. Another interesting example about this, I brought up the book The City of God. The City of God is addressed in the beginning to a man that Augustine had met in his churchly life as a bishop, uh, who was a sort of Christian politician. 
And Augustine addresses this to his friend named Marcellinus uh, to sort of explain to him in many ways how the city of God exists alongside the city of man and how this is supposed to inform our understanding of all of creation and even God himself. So he's writing this book addressed to his friend Marcellinus. If you read Augustine's letters, you'll find out that this is like a very dramatic frame for this book. Marcellinus was caught on the wrong side of a, um, a political conflict, and he was, he was killed. He was murdered politically for simply, you know, not for being a Christian, but for being on the wrong side of someone in the Roman Empire. So as Augustine is writing this book about the city of God and the city of man, his good friend, to whom he dedicated the book, is killed, murdered. You can read his letters between Marcellinus and then his letters to the guy who is responsible for Marcellinus' murder. So the voice of Augustine is very available to us, um, and it's, it's gripping. So that's Augustine as an author, some sort of examples. Okay, the next section, uh, the voice of Augustine. We should definitely understand the voice of Augustine as a preacher. So Augustine was sometime after his conversion to Christianity. So Augustine was a convert to Christianity uh, in the middle of his life. Um, his mother was a Christian and hoped that he would become a Christian, and he eventually did. It's very complicated, but uh, you can read all about this in the Confessions. And uh, before too long, he was made a bishop. So in our world, in the church today, like you don't necessarily associate a bishop with preaching. But in the ancient world, in many ways, this was the primary thing that like being a bishop meant. It means that you are the preacher. And the voice of the preacher contains the voice of the master, you might say. The fullness of authority given to the apostles included that they were political governors and that also they were sanctifiers. They, they preached the gospel to sanctify people, and that was their job. And if it wasn't carried out successfully, they were in some way accountable. So it's a, it's a great sort of kingly responsibility that includes a ministry of healing by miracles, you know, in the Acts of the Apostles, for example, and then a ministry of preaching. So... Preaching belongs to the office of bishop in this like very intense way. To go back a little bit, um, it's just interesting to know a little bit about Augustine's pre-bishop life and how this might have affected how he was seen as a preacher. So Augustine went to study uh, as a young man, and his studies were very successful, and he wound up in Milan because he was appointed to an important position in Milan as an imperial figure. It's sort of hard to define in our terms what exactly he was. So Milan was like the, the political capital of an important section of the Western Roman Empire. And a man named Symmachus, who was the prefect of the city, heard of Augustine and he was ordered to choose a professor of rhetoric for the city of Milan. So he appoints Augustine as the professor of rhetoric in Milan. And the imperial court resided in Milan, and the professor of rhetoric had responsibilities in some ways to the imperial court. So part of what he would do was deliver the official uh, panegyrics, the uh, encomia. So he, he would have to get up in front of large groups of people and praise the emperor and praise subordinate officials in the government and he talks about this in the Confessions when he's becoming a Christian. He's just like his, it was like the daily grind. He was like, after I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't get up there and say that stupid stuff about these guys anymore. Just had to get out of there. Like this was his official job. So uh, Peter Brown, who you know, Augustine scholars have uh, strong opinions about him, but I, I am more naive. He, he says that um, the successful rhetorician in this position would have found himself in many ways as a kind of minister of propaganda. So Augustine is kind of the minister of propaganda of the Roman Empire, um, at least in this part. It's something like if you were to in, uh, include the role of like White House press secretary 
within the job of Nobel laureate or like American poet laureate. Something expressing the beauty of his speech, but directed towards the um, strengthening of the empire and of the civic spirit. So it's important to realize that this is the kind of guy he was. And then he becomes a bishop and he returns to North Africa, where he's from, his hometown. And in some ways he's successful there, but in some ways he's less successful there than he was in Milan. So it's a preaching role, which is uh, humbling for him, where he's using the same arts that he gained as this kind of important government official, this uh, craftsman of words. And it's not necessarily like as easy as it was before. And he's striving to find different ways according to his education, but also inventing new genres to get things across to people. Because now he's dealing with a different role and different people and different problems. He's involved in a lot of conflicts, some of which were very specific, specific Christian conflicts. Okay, and then finally here in the voice of the master, the word and quotation. So at a certain point, in his life after becoming a Christian, it sort of seems like Augustine maybe stopped reading almost anything besides the Bible. At least he was like gulping down the Bible and he was, it was invading his whole vocabulary and he is quoting it in his writings like nonstop. And the way that he writes often sometimes and, you know, for long stretches is commentary. So quotations from the Bible interspersed with his explanations of them, but then right back to quotation. So even more than like a sermon would be nowadays, probably, you're just getting a sort of fire hydrant of Bible coming at you with comment commentary. So we'll see a little bit of this below, that his writing is often a kind of patchwork of biblical citations. So in this sense, the voice of the master is a role that Augustine adopts, fully aware of his inadequacy as a successor to the apostles, as a bishop, even though he was so great in the world. And he's adopting the word, that is the word of God, and making it his own word. He's doing it, somehow he retains his own voice. So I think this is kind of part of the mystery of Augustine's voice as a master, that he's using the word so profusely, but he's retaining it in his own idiom, his own way of thinking, but also his own way of speaking, and it's persuasive. Well, maybe not always as persuasive as he wants it to be. So, having said all that, I want to move into a kind of thread that you can take through Augustine to see him as someone who is a master for us, and can guide us. So, in The Statesman by Plato, a phrase arises uh, that is then picked up by others. So, in The Statesman, Plato, okay, so Plato wrote in dialogue form, and this is many centuries before Jesus, not many, uh, a number of centuries before Jesus. Um, and in the dialogues of Plato, Socrates is often depicted speaking to different people. And there's a series of dialogues where Socrates meets this stranger. And the stranger is trying to explain a lot of deep things to Socrates. Okay. So that's the context of the statesman. And the stranger is explaining to Socrates how the world came into being. Given that, it descends from heaven in some sense. So Plato had a strong inclination to understand reality as more real in heaven than it is on earth. That the eternal things of heaven 
are the foundation of anything that we have here on earth, and that the evils of this life are the result of a kind of conflict among contraries that exists in the material world. Okay, so it's it's a it's an elaborate philosophy that Plato gives us in lots of different dialogues, but that's in a way a theme running through many of them. That here below there are contraries, even like hot and cold, uh, one and two, which create a kind of dissonance among the things that we know. Whereas in heaven, which is the source of all these things, there is only one, the one, who is good and whose goodness informs or gives form to everything in this world. Now, when the stranger is talking, he uses this phrase about, he's talking about like, well, how did like animals come into being? Because I can understand human beings in a certain sense. They're kind of like gods. They have a kind of immortal quality to them. But what about like lower things like animals? He's, he mentions this phrase, the sea of dissimilarity. Dissimilarity is a strange way to describe this dynamic of the one in heaven and the many diffuse things on earth. But it becomes very important in Augustine, so I think we should consider it. So dissimilarity. We know that God made man in his image and to his uh, similitudo, his similitude, his likeness. So similitude, similarity, is going to be a big part of the Christian tradition as well as this pagan tradition. So the realm of dissimilarity. In the time after Jesus, the school of Plato developed and it got, it got more cool. They got some Aristotle in there into the school of Plato. Uh, there were a lot of influences, but one of the sort of charismatic leaders of the Platonic school was Plotinus. So not Plato, but Plotinus. Plotinus quotes this word dissimilarity. He makes reference to this. So centuries later and after the Christian uh, revelation in Jesus Christ, we see that this is still being used. So it's like it becomes a sort of talking point, the realm of dissimilarity. So if we look at the second text I gave you, we'll find a place where Augustine uses it. Do you see this? Augustine Confessions, book seven. Being admonished by all of this, so he's just listed a bunch of scripture that he feels admonished by. I returned to myself, and I entered into my own depths with you as guide, speaking to God. And I was able to do it because you were my helper. So Augustine is talking about finding a direction by entering into his own depths, reflection into himself. But self-reflection is not merely reflection upon the self because God is his helper. This is a, a very uh, kind of lovely way to think about God, that he is our helper. Even though he is so much greater than us, he gives us help. Like, you know, your helper is normally like you're a little guy who maybe, you know, you're in charge of. But God calls himself in the scriptures our helper. So Augustine feels bold to say that God is his helper. I entered into my own depths, and with the eye of my soul, such as it was, I saw your unchangeable light shining over that same eye of my soul, over my mind. When I first knew thee, thou didst lift me up so that I might see that there was something to see, but that I was not yet the man to see it. And thou didst beat back the weakness of my gaze, blazing upon me too strongly, and I was shaken with love and with dread. And I knew that I was far from thee in the region of unlikeness, in regione dissimilitudinis, as if I heard thy voice from on high. I am the food of grown men. Grow, and you shall eat me, 
and you shall not change me into yourself as bodily food, but into me you shall be changed. So there's a lot going on in this passage. One way of looking at this is that Augustine is talking about the healing of his soul as union with God. He's becoming united with God by looking into his own soul, and God is healing him from within. And this is very important to him because in his soul, he knows that there is something divine, but he's drawn in all kinds of directions that he hates. As St. Paul says, I do the thing that I hate. So the healing of the soul happens through this union with God. And this is something that would have been familiar to these Platonists, these pagans. So this is accessible to non-Christians. But another thing that Augustine is doing is he's making a reference to the parable in the Gospel of Luke about the prodigal son. So in subtle ways, Augustine is referring to this idea of, first of all, being in a faraway land. So the way that he uses this phrase, the realm of dissimilitude or dissimilarity, is also a reference to the fact that the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke took his father's possessions before he was supposed to have them, Okay, so took his inheritance from his father, and he went off into a faraway land. So this is Augustine sort of mobilizing different things at once and making it a kind of like interior spiritual journey that's also speaking to all these different kinds of people. So the healing of the soul is happening, and it's happening in terms of light and also food. So what's that all about? So light was definitely a big deal for the pagan philosophers. If you read some Plotinus, you'll, you'll run into a lot of light. Light is, in many ways, the medium through which we become spiritual and we avoid the material. So light, in this life, gives us a sort of metaphor for intelligibility, the immaterial light, the invisible light that shines on our minds. But in Plotinus, for example, when he is quoting this thing about the region of dissimilarity, he's talking all about where does evil come from, and he's associating it with the material world. So, for Augustine, for many reasons, many of the sort of philosophies and religious inclinations that he was trapped in before he became a Christian would have thought that the material world was a stumbling block. It was something... It's this region of dissimilarity. It's associated with mud as opposed to light. It's like being caked in mud, and being unable to see light. So matter is the principle of a kind of evil in life. Augustine, then, is making reference to food at a time when it might sound really inappropriate to some people. And it's coming from the voice of God. So, as if I heard thy voice from on high, I am the food of grown men. Grow and you shall eat me. And you shall not change me into yourself as bodily food, but into me you shall be changed. So to be changed into God has been the goal for the philosophers. But also to see God is the goal of the psalmist of the Bible of Moses. Moses wants to see God explicitly. And that light is being expressed by God in a certain sense as food. Okay. Also, we can think about the fact that Augustine is treating God as his friend. So he's taking up the classical idea of friendship as something that guides uh, the search for truth, the search for healing of oneself and knowledge and virtue. And he's using this, but he's steering it in towards God. So, the Father 
is speaking to the sun as food. And the son, in this case, is Augustine. But the father also expresses himself through his perfect likeness. So for Christianity, the likeness of God, the perfect likeness, is Jesus, the son. Eternal, living with the father in perfect unity, union, oneness, and made available to us as a man, and then also as food. Okay, so this union of friendship which heals, which gives life, virtue, is being made into food through the Son. And this is all present in the voice of the Father, the voice of God speaking to Augustine. So the Word and his sacramental body are the way to similitude. Okay, so that's the the realm of dissimilarity, dissimilitude. Let's go on to this third section, the image of God as the way to God. Union with God. How is this supposed to work? A lot of Christians would say it's through love. What does it have to do with really knowing God? And many people would say, isn't Augustine all about love? All about burning with love, expressing himself through strong emotional terms. Yes, true. Didn't he say that he was at one point in love with love? Augustine says that. So, I just want to give you a series of texts that come from his work on the Trinity that can give you, in just a brief list of phrases, uh, an understanding of how Augustine sees the importance of knowledge for the believer. Number one, we must believe before we can understand. So, belief comes, but it comes before something else, understanding. Number two, Let us first adhere through faith that there may be that which may be quickened by understanding. Number three, if there is some way in which we can see by our understanding what we believe, what might this way be? This is cool because it's a question. If there's some way that we can get deeper into our faith, what would it be? Is there some way we can understand? So, seeking. He's famous for the charisma of his seeking. Number four, I desired to see with my understanding that which I believed. So what he believed, something that he has, and he, having believed it, desires it. He desires to see it. So love makes you desire to see. The desire to see is associated with the possibility of reaching the one through intellect. So this is something that you could find in Plotinus, that the one gives a kind of birth to a lower divine way of being or general sense of being, which is intellect. So the one generates, in a certain sense, the intellect or the logos in a certain pagan philosophy. So intellect points then in two directions. Intellect is the second level. It can point down and it can understand what is below, but it can also point up towards the one. So intellect, which comes from the one, also seeks to return to the one. So in this basic kind of Neoplatonic sketch, intellect itself is made out of the one, and it has a desire to return to the one because it can see below, but can also see above, and it's drawn back above. So this, in the biblical sense, is the same thing for Augustine as the longing to see the face of God. The longing to see the face of God, which is expressed in the word of God, And the words of God are so perfectly expressed by the book of the Psalms that when Augustine keeps hearing about the desire to see his face, he understands that this is the word seeking union with its source, its father. And it is the similitude of God in that it is Jesus speaking. 
So this book, the De Trinitate, on the Trinity, where I was getting these quotations about believing before you can understand. The De Trinitate treats God as a trinity, not just as the one. And it also treats man as in the image of God and as one possible way that Augustine sees as fruitful for thinking about God. So he is famous for giving this reflective account of memory, uh, intelligence or understanding, and will, and that this sort of trio helps us see something about the Trinity by reflecting what we can know about our own way of understanding, because we are marked by the Trinity in some way. But this is, in a way, very experimental. So he tries a lot of things, tries a lot of different things out, and they don't all work. So he is guiding different audiences, you could say, different types of people through these experiments on the Trinity, and he's captivating them through different attempts. And one useful thing about this book is that in many other works, Augustine is in like war mode. He wants to destroy his opponents because they are dangerous people. He wants to just flatten them by pointing out how dumb they are because of the dumb things they've said and showing how much they're missing. That's obvious. Okay, so he can get into that mode because he's well-trained in all kinds of different uh, techniques. In De Trinitate, uh, he says that his, his goal is something that he wants to accomplish, he wants to accomplish uh, through peaceful means. So, so grace and peace. Peace is the mode of reflection that he favors in reflecting on God. He says, so he's talking in one section about how God has never shown himself to the bodily eyes. So he's, he's proving that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not themselves visible. And he says, Okay, we've gotten somewhere here. That can be a starting block for many other things. He says, let us go on to investigate in the peace of the Catholic faith with peaceable persistence, ready to be put right by well-founded brotherly correction, ready even to be chewed up by an enemy, provided what he says is true. So Augustine's theological mode in many of his important works takes this um, almost um, uh, exaggeratedly humble stance of, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. If anybody knows any better, I would love to hear from him. Please come, please contact me. So he's ready to be chewed up by an enemy, provided what he says is true, because he is looking for peace. He wants to accomplish peace. Augustine's, Augustine takes responsibility for all kinds of people. So he's taking responsibility for people outside the church who don't believe in the Trinity, as well as training those who are inside the church. And he wants to establish, insofar as it is possible, to our limited minds, peace. So this whole intellectual effort is for the sake of the, the peace of the Catholic faith. And with peaceable persistence, let us be, right, let us be ready to be put right by well-founded brotherly correction. So he wants peace in friendship, fraternal correction, and in the truth. So he says, I have one condition to all this, as long as what they say is well-founded in the truth. Okay. So what is he doing then in terms of, like, if he's a spiritual master, what is he up to? What is his technique? If Augustine is Mr. Miyagi, and he is training us to fight for peace, what is, what is the mode that he uses? You know, because there's definitely, there's always a technique. So that's this final section, section uh, exercitatio mentis and uh, acies mentis. Augustine wants to exercise us by putting us through our paces. So he gives us tons of words to exercise us, to 
exercise the mind. And sometimes uh, people will notice that his, his methods are kind of like scattered. So this is from an essay by a French Dominican, Gilles Emery, who's comparing Augustine and Aquinas as Trinitarian theologians and how they have different techniques for training their students. He says, about Augustine, before being able to contemplate the truth, the soul must become accustomed to its light through a preparatory training, a sort of spiritual gymnastics. The exercitatio, the exercise, is what this means. The exercitatio introduces the soul to the climate of suprasensible realities and causes it to blossom there, little by little. So little by little, the exercises of St. Augustine introduce us to a new climate. Um, you know, it's like training in different atmospheres. This atmosphere requires gradual acclimation. And then powers of the soul can bloom slowly. So, Gilles Emery goes on to say, one discovers that the interminable detours, repetitions, and digressions of the De Trinitate are on purpose and are part of Augustine's deliberate intention to exercise the spirit of his reader, to lead it to the ascension towards God the Trinity by sharpening the tip of his soul, acies mentis, the point of the soul. So the soul is pointy. It has a, it has a uh, spear-like quality, and it can divide things. So this is one way of thinking about making judgments. Judgment is the act of dividing and combining. So, you know, saying that this is this, and it is not this. Division. And this is what the soul in its intellectual mode does. So it's kind of like a spear, torpedo. And Augustine is doing this to like sharpen our souls. So all of these exercises that he puts the reader through, which can seem like digressions uh, and our digressions, uh, our detours, are for the sake of a deliberate intention of exercising the soul of the reader and making you sharp. And this is his role as a spiritual master. So making you capable of examining your faith in love, gradually in the company of someone trustworthy, and in the company of friends and even enemies, you become sharpened. This is another beloved theme of the Dominicans, that uh, there's, a, there's a verse in the book of Proverbs, uh, iron sharpens iron. We like to argue with each other because it sharpens us. And this is part of the training in being a preacher. So if you want to be able to talk to people about God, you need to be sharpened. You need to exercise. And the way to do that is to be around other people who are willing to do this in goodwill and to take a long time and to live together. So living in common. Uh, fraternal conviviality, classical friendship in a Christian mode. So this is all a non-linear movement. If your life is kind of zigzaggy, that means that the sharpening is happening. It, you're being sharpened by the non-linear, the lateral movements of all of the things that God is making you do and that all of these different teachers are suggesting to you. You know, even the great masters disagree. Even uh, the great senseis have different techniques. But they're training their students in the same art and in some instances in the same goal towards the same end. Okay. So I'll end with um, a section from the De Trinitate just to give you a little taste of that and then some concluding thoughts. So this is the last text on your sheet. So like I said, Augustine uses quotation profusely. Here we get a lot of Paul and John. We see now through a mirror in an enigma, but then it will be face to face. 
So what we have been trying to do is somehow to see him by whom we were made by means of this image which we ourselves are, as though in a mirror. Looking at the glory of the Lord in a mirror, he's quoting St. Paul again. Looking at the glory of the Lord in a mirror, we are being transformed into the same image from from glory to glory, as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we are being changed from form to form, and are passing from a blurred form to a clear one. But even the blurred one is the image of God. And if image, then of course, glory, in which men were created, surpassing the other animals. From the glory of faith to the glory by which we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So, in conclusion, Augustine wants to sharpen your mind, to sharpen your intellectual eyes, so you can see what you already believe. As Thomas Aquinas would continue to teach in the school of St. Augustine, knowledge is for the sake of union. So we know in order that we can be united with other things, and especially the union that is love. So this is not only how the soul works, not only how our souls function as knowing and loving, but it's also a way that the life of the Trinity becomes present in us, us who are made in God's image. This is the realm of the dissimilar. We're in the realm of dissimilarity, and it's easy to get lost. It's easy to wander, to be presumptuous about the inheritance that we have from our Father and to go off into a distant land, but we can return to ourselves. The one is a father, and the perfect likeness of the one, the perfect similitude of the one, is his son. And in the voice of Augustine, we hear the son, who shepherds us out of death by the grace of his body and of his soul and by the teachings of his saints. I'll stop there. Uh, Thank you for your attention.